Is it good or bad to argue? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by arguing. If you're talking about just uh, emotional venting that goes on, uh, that's not really a productive thing. I've uh, been able to experience this with uh, my family life as we watch our children uh, go back and forth on uh, different things. And I I remind them regularly that I never uh, argued with my siblings at all. Of course, I was raised as an only child, but still... Uh, you know, that's something, a standard to, to live up to. And, uh, but no, they, they will go back and forth over stuff. And really, it is bickering that goes on there. That's really what they're doing. They're not really trying to convince one of the other. They're not preventing evidence or whatever. They're just bickering. They're just venting emotion. Now, I can pick on my children, but the thing is, that's not just something for children. I was actually once at a deacon's meeting, definitely not this church. Uh, this would never happen at this church, I don't think. But anyways, we were at, at a, a previous uh, pastorate uh, at, a, at a deacon's meeting. Uh, I watched as two deacons in the middle of this meeting began yelling at each other. And it was back and forth. They were really passionate, really uh, excited. And you might think, well, that's good. It's good to have that passion. And it is, except for they weren't even talking about the same thing. And I can't remember what the argument was about, but it went, this is just to give you an idea of, of the frustration I had as I was listening to them. One would say, the sky is blue. And the other one would say, no, the grass is green. No, the sky is blue. The grass is green. And they just would get more and more upset. And I just sat there. I wanted to shake them to say, you're not even talking about the same thing. Just stop it. Stop it. But uh, eventually they did stop, of course. Uh, so that is a, a way that, that arguments can happen. Now, uh, it just happens. It's uh, just perfect timing that I'm preaching on this because... Uh, after almost 20 years of marriage, this week, I actually finally won an argument with Amanda. And so I was really, really excited about this. Uh, we were, we went out for dinner and, uh, uh, our daughter Emma asked, uh, what is more sour, lemon or lime? And Amanda said it was lemon. And I said, no, it is lime. And to be honest though, I only said lime because uh, it was the opposite of what Amanda said. And so I went on my phone and I looked it up and indeed there is scientific evidence that limes are more sour than lemon. And you can ask Amanda, right there in the middle of the restaurant, both arms went up in victory. I was so excited to have finally won that. It is a true story. You might think, well, that's not really an argument. You weren't yelling back and forth at each other. And that's exactly it, because an argument doesn't have to be that. If you look up argument in the dictionary, uh, you will see, indeed, that there it can be an angry exchange between two people. But another definition of argument is putting forth the reasons for a particular position, trying to convince someone by setting forth your case why this is indeed the truth. And so that is a very positive way of having an argument. Uh, There is no reason that we have to yell or get angry or get upset at all during a real argument. Argument can be simply uh, explaining logically why a certain position is true. 
And we actually find the Apostle Paul numerous times, both in the book of Acts and also in his letters, he argues, not by getting upset, but by putting forth his case. Because there were certain things that he believed passionately. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And he was willing to argue that case. And that's what we're going to look at in this particular passage. So in Acts 17, what we have is the Apostle Paul going to visit a synagogue. And this was his his regular pattern that he did. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul is known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles is a name for people who are not Jewish. So why does he go to the synagogue if that's not his target group? The reason is, when he goes to a new city, he needs to find a core group. And so uh, Paul himself coming from a Jewish background, if he can get some Jewish people who already are familiar with the scriptures to come to know Jesus as Messiah, that is a good core group to start a church. Not only that, at the synagogue, there would be people who are sometimes called God-fearers. And these are Gentiles who believe in the Jewish God, but have not gone the full uh, uh, the full way towards uh, conversion. So they might not have gotten circumcised. They might not have uh, taken on all of the Jewish law, but they do believe in the Jewish God and they're trying to fo- uh, follow the moral uh, values that are found in those Jewish scriptures. And so he would have access to them in that synagogue. So we have him visiting Thessalonica and he goes there and he begins to share Jesus with these Jews in the synagogue. Now, I want you to know this is not the same as if uh, some of us just decided to visit our local synagogue here in St. Catharines and just walk in during uh, one of their Sabbath services and try to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not the same situation at all. What Paul was doing was something that was appropriate for who he was as an individual and for the kind of thing that would happen in those Sabbath services in the synagogue uh, in that place. And so for, for Paul, he wasn't there to try to convert people from one religion to another. He wasn't trying to convert people from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, at this time, there was no difference uh, between that. It was just uh, Christianity was seen as a uh, part of Judaism. It was a, a sect of Judaism, of people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Paul, as a Jewish person, as a Pharisee, was welcome to go into the synagogue and to share his interpretation of these Old Testament scriptures. It was completely appropriate for him to do that. And so he begins to try to convince them from their own scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And these are the arguments that he's doing. He is doing something that fits with who he is, and it fits with the audience that is there. And so he takes them through the scriptures, through passages that prophesy about what the way the Messiah would be, uh, the suffering servant, and all of those kinds of things, uh, to show them that Jesus is the one that they have been waiting for. So how successful was he? Well, we find in this passage that there are certain of the Jewish people Uh, who do uh, agree, they are convinced by Paul's arguments, and they are ready to become followers of Jesus. There are some others of the Gentiles 
that are willing to accept. And so we see that there is this group of people who are convinced by Paul's arguments. On the other hand, we see that there's another group of people who are very upset. They're quite offended by what Paul is saying, and there ends up, there's a a bit of a a riot that takes place in Thessalonica, and it, it can get pretty scary there. But the point is, Paul believed that this was true, and he was prepared to argue his case, not to to walk into a place that he wasn't welcome and to yell and scream at people, but rather to go to the place that was natural for him to be around his people and to be able to share his reasons for why he is a follower of Jesus. So bringing this back to our situation what do we do? Are we supposed to go around and to, uh, to argue with our friends and family? And I would say yes, depending on how we are going to argue. Uh, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Uh, I absolutely love anything that I can read by C.S. Lewis. I just love to read it. And one of the reasons why I think that I am drawn to C.S. Lewis is I see something similar in his experience uh, compared to my own, in that he was uh, someone who uh, was an atheist and then gradually came to the point of becoming a Christian. But how did C.S. Lewis move from being an atheist to being a Christian? Did he just uh, sit in his room one night and then uh, light out of heaven came and all of a sudden his mind was changed and he uh, he was converted? That's not what happened. It was actually a very long process, and it took a number of steps. Uh, The first step that he had to take was to move from atheism to theism, to believe uh, that there is only this material world to believing that there is something beyond this world. And that happened through conversations with his friend, Owen Barfield. You might not have heard of Owen Barfield, but he was someone who was very important. He was a part of this group that C.S. Lewis uh, belonged to called the Inklings, where they would gather together and they would share their their stories and their writings and so on. And C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield would would have this talk, and Barfield would uh, would try to demonstrate to Lewis that there was something beyond this world. And this was an argument. In fact, Lewis's Uh, description of these conversations was called the Great War. That's what he called it, the Great War, uh, between the idea that materialism is true to the point that there is something supernatural. So eventually, Lewis was convinced by Barfield, yes, there's something beyond this world. Uh, There is a God out there somehow. But that's not enough to become a Christian. So how did C.S. Lewis go from that to believing there's just the supernatural world and there's a God out there somewhere to becoming a believer in Jesus? Well, that happened through a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien, my other favorite author, uh, author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And Tolkien was a a devout uh, Christian and they had a conversation. In fact, it, it took place in one night. I'm sure there were many conversations, but the, the turning point was one evening. They went out for a long walk well into the early hours of the morning where uh, Tolkien uh, helped Lewis to understand who Jesus was and, and how this all fits with the, the world of myth that Lewis was familiar with. He thought that maybe uh, Jesus was just another myth. 
And Tolkien was able to uh, put forth an argument as to why Jesus was real and was worth following. And it was because of that, uh, C.S. Lewis not only became a Christian, but became one of the most influential Christian writers. Now, what does that mean for us? Because uh, probably none of us put ourselves in the category of C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. But the thing is, there is an opportunity for all of us to argue the Christian faith. No, we don't barge into our neighbor's house and start yelling, you must believe in Jesus now. That's not what we're going to do. Uh, If you're going to go and tell your friends and family that uh, your pastor told you to start yelling at them, that is not what I am saying at all. Our arguments can simply be, this is why I believe that Jesus is is the way. Uh, this is often called Christian apologetics, but that sounds so difficult. It can be as simple as, uh, this is the difference that Jesus made in my life, or this is how I came to believe that the Bible really tells the truth in this confusing world. There's all kinds of ways in which we can do that. Uh, it all depends on who we are talking to. Sometimes I will share with a person why I believe there is a reason to believe that God exists. Other times, I might be pointing towards why I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's not just about that. That's not the only argument that we have. When we are actually helping the people of our community, the kind of things that we do in this church, uh, reaching out to the, to the poor, to the mentally ill, to the addicts, when we're doing that, that's actually an argument for the truth of Christianity. I really believe that. I believe that when we speak out against injustice, that is an argument for the truth of Christianity. Do you want to know what another good argument uh, uh, for Christianity is? Is when Christians are not jerks. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Just don't be a jerk. uh, Because people are sometimes expecting Christians to be a jerk. And so when when we're nice and respectful uh, and, and treat people in a positive way, sometimes they're shocked. They're like, I didn't expect a religious person to be like that. Well, this is the Jesus way, is to be respectful and loving towards everyone, no matter how we might disagree with different aspects of their life. I had a certain group of friends uh, in my late high school to early uh, university and I, I would say that these were my drinking buddies, okay? These are the people that I would uh, get together with, and we would drink large amounts of alcohol together. Early in my, well, I, I guess it's later in my university uh, time, uh, I ended up becoming a Christian, and I stopped drinking, and it was kind of a, a weird situation at first. And, and, and actually, at first, they were quite happy with it because they had an automatic designated driver, so they were okay with me being sober. But... Uh, I tried to be a witness to them. And I'll tell you, looking back at the things that I said, the words that I said, it wasn't very good. I actually cringe at the way I was with them. And I felt there was like no hope of anything happening. But over the years, we all went in our different directions. None of us stayed where we were. Uh, we all went off. And I lost touch with uh, a number of them for a number of years. And then as I reconnected years later, I found that almost all of them came to faith in Christ and who are are dedicated churchgoers uh, serving God in their communities. And I do not take any credit for that at all because my witnessing was 
terrible. But I talked to one of my university friends, and he commented that he saw something in my life after I became a Christian that was attractive. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the words that I said. It wasn't uh, a specific uh, logical uh, demonstration. But he saw something in there, and God used that. So again, I do not take credit for that. But God uses the words that we offer, uh, the deeds that we do, the ways that we act, all of those things. God uses that as an argument for the truth of Christianity. So Paul goes to the synagogue. He's with his people, and he does what is natural for him. It is natural for him to go through the scriptures with his fellow Jews and to point to them how Jesus is the Messiah. We are called to argue for the truth of Christianity. It's not going to look the same way that it did for Paul. We are not Jewish Pharisees of the first century. We don't live in that context. We have a certain context. We have friends and family. And if we just listen, we can understand what it is that they need help for in coming to faith. And it can be a long process. It can be simply giving the answers that we know and being willing to say, I have no idea when there is a question that we don't know. Sometimes it's not even about trying to show the truth by going back to historical evidence or anything like that. Sometimes it's just about taking that friend out to Tim Hortons when they're going through a hard time. It can be uh, praying for that person, just being present with them in the midst of their suffering. All of those things are arguments for the truth of Christianity. Let us pray. God, all of us here have friends and family who do not know you, and we want them to know you. We want you to use us in whatever way. We see that Paul was passionate about the truth of Jesus and that he did whatever was required, even if it meant danger for himself. God, we pray for wisdom that we would know how to talk to the people in our community, that we would know what is appropriate for their needs, that you would give us the words, that you would give us the courage, and that you would help us to live out the Christian life to the best of our ability. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.